Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Kevin Featherstone. I'm a professor in the European Institute here at the uh, LSE. Tonight's panel discussion is part of a series uh, organized by the LSE program on Brexit. This is a program of collaboration between the School of Public Policy here at the LSE and the European Institute. Uh, the program is uh, jointly coordinated uh, by myself and Tony Travers uh, from the School of Public Policy. Uh, and um, we've been having a series of discussions about Brexit uh, basically for the last, last half century, I guess, really. <laughs> it seems like that. Anyway, that, uh, and obviously the Brexit agenda will uh, continue. So we look forward to uh, further discussions as we, as we learn uh, more. The series is, tonight's event rather, is also part of a series for the school which has the intriguing title of New World Disorders, where the dis is in uh, parentheses. So it could be New World Orders or New World Disorders uh, discuss. And uh, this is therefore a forerunner to the LSE Festival, which will take place in February uh, and March, details of which you can get on the LSE uh, website. So clearly tonight, as you've seen from the title, we're taking stock. Uh, that is, we're trying to assess where have we got to. We're not arguing the pros and cons of Brexit. Uh, we're trying to explain uh, the current situation, to distinguish what is known and uh, what is still to be decided, what is unknown, uh, etc. One thing which we do know, of course, is the withdrawal agreements, which was uh, agreed by the, the Prime Minister, Theresa May, and the associated political declaration, uh, which doesn't have uh, legal uh, force. And these may be uh, prominent reference points as we go forward with our uh, discussion. If the Theresa May deal is agreed, then it is expected, although not certain, that we would leave on the 29th of March, and there would be a period which is either called a transition period or an implementation period, which would last until the end of December 2020. Uh, and then a negotiation for the future relationship. But of course, we're already aware of the uncertainty even with that schedule. Might Article 50 uh, be suspended, extended? Might the negotiations uh, be uh, extended? But we have a reference point uh, amongst others, and I'm sure our panelists will be helping us to understand what is known and what is uncertain. And indeed, we have a great panel of experts uh, this evening, four prominent uh, experts on different aspects of uh, Brexit. Uh, in the order in which they'll be speaking to you, we have Professor Catherine Bernard, who is a professor in European Union law and employment law at the University of Cambridge. She's a senior tutor and fellow of Trinity College, uh, an often cited source on uh, Brexit and the legal uh, implications of Brexit. Uh, Catherine will be talking about the withdrawal agreements, the political declaration, and will try to take us um, uh, beyond that uh, to understand what has been agreed or what hasn't been agreed. Secondly, uh, Professor Sarah Hobolt 
is uh, a colleague of mine here at the London School of Economics in the Government Department. She holds the Sutherland Chair in European Institutions, uh, and she will be speaking in terms of uh, public opinion, public opinion trends, what are UK voters currently feeling about Brexit, and uh, what might they be likely to support uh, or oppose. Thirdly, we have Rain Newton-Smith, and she is the Chief Economist at the Confederation of British uh, Industry. Uh, she has uh, worked for the Bank of England, and she's been developing a risk assessment framework on the UK financial system. Again, an often quoted reference on the economic implications of uh, Brexit. Finally, but by no means least, we have Sir Stephen Wall, uh, who is a former British ambassador to Portugal. He was permanent representative for the UK to the European uh, Union. He was uh, private secretary to John Major at the time of the Maastricht uh, Treaty negotiations. And he's worked in the Cabinet Office, the European Secretariat, uh, etc. So each of, uh, so, and, and Stephen will be talking to us about the impact of Brexit on government, on Whitehall, uh, what it means, what we've learned so far in that regard. So we have four uh, experts to guide us to analyze and explain what we know and what we still have to learn. Uh, we will uh, invite them to make short contributions at the beginning. That means that there'll be plenty of time for questions uh, from you, the audience. Uh, in fact, as they speak, you could also make comments through Twitter. Yeah. Uh, I think there's probably, yes. Uh, there isn't a Twitter uh, label there, but it would be hashtag LSE Europe uh, for the uh, Twitter comments you might uh, wish to make as we go uh, forward. LSE Brexit. Brexit. Hashtag LSE Brexit. The on the previous occasion, it was LSE Europe. Is it LSE Brexit? <laughs> uh, in the sense that it's displayed under the title in front of you. So, um, uh, yes, I was just offering an academic alternative, but uh, clearly... Uh, the hashtag is nicely bias. in uh, red uh, uh, labeling there for you. Thank you uh, for that. Could I also ask you something which I'm about to do, and that is to switch off our mobile phones or to put them to, to silence uh, so we don't interrupt the proceedings. Uh, the event is being uh, recorded and will then be made available subsequently for um, downloading um, uh, for those who, who wish it. So uh, to get things uh, started, can you please join me in welcoming our panel and in invite Catherine Bernard to start us off. Well, thank you very much indeed. It's an honour and privilege to be here this evening um, to talk Brexit. Now, I'm going to talk, talk to you about it from a legal point of view. I recognise that a lot of the audience is not, uh, doesn't have a legal background, but I will just try to explain some of the issues from the perspective of a lawyer. And, of course, bearing in mind that these are legal texts that we're talking about. The EU is a legal construct. Uh, it's governed by treaties. The process for joining the EU and leaving the EU is dictated by law, although, of course, politics um, has a major role to play, as my political scientist colleagues would say very clearly. Now, just to start, by way of just to say we are dealing with two documents. 
And confusingly, they're both referred to as the deal. This doesn't help understanding. The crucial document that we're really talking about is the withdrawal agreement under Article 50. That's the divorce text. And that's the, the, the beast of 585 pages. And that document is drafted to be legally binding. It will bind the UK. Now, in addition to the withdrawal agreement text, there is a much shorter political declaration, uh, which runs to about 25, 26 pages. And the political declaration is really putting out some sort of template for what the future relationship might be about. Now, what's confusing is that the meaningful vote, which is going to take place now on the 11th of December, will be on both, but only the first one is legally binding. And so it's the first one that I will mainly concentrate on, but I will say a little bit about the second one. Now, as far as the withdrawal agreement is concerned, its structure hasn't changed uh, very much at all from the drafts that were published in February and March of this year. And it has the parts, as described there, um, which uh, cover things um, like citizens' rights. That's the rights of EU nationals who are currently in the UK and UK nationals in the EU. It says nothing about the future mobility arrangements. It's got important provisions on transition, financial provisions. That's where the 39 billion kicks in. And uh, the institutional framework, which governs the operation of the withdrawal agreement. And crucially, you've got protocols, most importantly the Protocol of Northern Ireland, which is the so-called backstop that you've heard so much about. Now, where this document has um, got so much bigger, has expanded dramatically, is in respect to the protocols and annexes, which really were almost non-existent in the original draft, and that's where it's ballooned from 100-odd pages to the best part of 600 pages. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pull out 10 points from the withdrawal agreement, which I think are quite interesting. Now, you would also presumably think they're quite interesting, which is why you've come out on a wet evening. But I accept that um, it might confirm why, why many of you are suspicious about lawyers, because they are interesting points of um, law which govern this agreement. The first and most striking is that this agreement is still subject to the principles of direct effect and supremacy. Now, those are jargon terms. Direct effect means it's about enforceability. Enforceability, I can enforce the provisions of this agreement in my local court. Really important, because it was, didn't exist in the original version of the withdrawal agreement. I can enforce this text in my local court, and the provisions of this text will trump any other provisions of national law. Now, you remember, that was one of the reasons why the UK voted to leave in the first place, but direct effect and supremacy are still there, and it's very clearly stated. Less clearly stated, I must say, in the government's explanation of the text. <laughs> Point two, citizens' rights. You saw that there was a chapter on citizens' rights, and this um, has already been much discussed. These are the rules which will eventually leave, lead to EU nationals acquiring settled status in the UK or pre-settled status for those who've already exercised their rights of free movement. Now, in the final version, not that much has changed. Um, 
What I would note is, for lawyers amongst you, it's interesting that they expressly now cover citizens of Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway. Those are the EEA states, plus uh, Switzerland. Why is that remarkable? It's sensible. We always knew it would happen. But in fact, this is decided under Article 50, and Article 50 is about withdrawal from the EU, not about withdrawal from the EEA. So it's interesting that they should appear there um, at all. The other thing is it also cover, it doesn't cover onward free movement. And by onward free movement, that's what happens to a British national who's currently living in France. Will they have the right then to move on to Spain or Germany afterwards? There was a hint that that would be possible in the first draft. All of it has gone. It's gone entirely. It's not even mentioned in the political declaration. So it's not clear whether British nationals are going to be stuck in the country that they have currently got residence in. The other thing that's worth looking at is it does say very clearly that there is lifelong protection. Now, this might cause a bit of um, a shock to the Brexiteurs because the rights in this section cover the last child that is born at the end of the transition period, which at the moment is um, the end of 2020, and it also covers, let's assume it's a him, that child's child. So if he has a child age 70, and then um, that takes us, and that child lives for another 70 or 80 years, these provisions will last for the best part of 150, 160 years. Now that is not what you saw on the side of the it's bus. Never too late. Thirdly, extension of transition. Now, transition is the thing that usually bores people witless. And when you're teaching law students, we usually skim over the transition period because that's not very exciting. But actually, of course, it's absolutely crucial for business because it provides some degree of certainty. And I think you'll hear a bit more about that later on. But what's interesting is the transition period, um, as envisaged, is too short. It's envisaged to run till 31st of December 2020. Now, the idea behind that was that the UK would then have a deal in place on the future relationship which would seamlessly segue from the end of the transition period to the new deal. And that's why Theresa May still insists on calling it an implementation period. It's called the transition period in the text, but the idea is it would seamlessly move one into the other. No sensible person ever thought that was going to happen because it takes about, on average, 42 months to negotiate a trade agreement with the EU. And this is going to be the trade agreement that beats all trade agreements because never before has the EU negotiated a trade agreement where you have less close relationship rather than a more close relationship. So it's very unlikely that it will take just 42 months. It will probably take longer if you do the maths. You start negotiating in autumn 2019, plus 42 months, you're talking about 2023-ish, and then the agreement's got to be ratified by all of the member states. So you're talking 2024, 2025. That's why, very sensibly, there is now a provision in the text to extend the transition period. And when it was first published, it said 20XX. That was clarified to one or two years, probably still not enough. But anyway, that, there is now a possibility of the extension of the transition period. Point four. If you've been listening to Theresa May's recent pronouncements, she says we will, one of the great advantages of the deal is that we will be ending the jurisdiction of the Court of Justice of the European Union. 
I'm afraid that's just categorically untrue. If you do a rough count, as I did, I counted about 70-odd, 72 references to the ECJ in the text. Now, I accept that's a rather unfair count because a lot of the provisions are about uh, separation arrangements, what about cases that are currently being heard by the ECJ. But the ECJ has some important things to do over the management of aspects of the divorce, including uh, dealing with the rights of EU citizens in the UK and vice versa, and also under the dispute resolution procedure, and I'll come back to that in a moment. So the ECJ still does have an important role, not as important as it has at the moment, but still does have an important role. Which brings me on to five, my fifth interesting point, and it's about institutions. Now, I also accept that institutions is not really a very exciting subject, but these are going to be the bodies that help regulate and deal with our relationship for a number of years to come. What's striking about uh, this text is that there is a marked shift from a so-called supranational type arrangement to a much more intergovernmental arrangement. And by that I mean supranational is where you have bodies like the European Commission and the European Court of Justice which act in the interests of the EU as a whole and not in the interests of the member states. So their, their raison d'etre is to look after the interests of the EU. That's gone. We've gone to an intergovernmental model. An intergovernmental model is where each side basically protects their own interests. And what we've got here is a joint committee, which will, is, is essentially the controlling organ of the agreement. It's the political body, and it will be advised by um, uh, specialist committees, and you've got a list of them there. They're the ones that deal essentially with the controversial aspects of the agreement. And then another aspect of the institutions is, of course, how will you settle disputes under this? Now, this may well be too small for you to see, but in essence, what it says is the if there's a problem with the application of the agreement, it goes to the joint committee, the political body, to sort it out, no, not go to a court. And that joint committee's got three months to sort out the problem. And if that they can't sort it out in three months, then what you see is that the case will go to arbitration, not to a court. It goes to an arbitration panel of five, two from each side, two from the UK, two from the EU, and one jointly agreed chair. If that arbitration panel doesn't understand or wants guidance as to the meaning of a point of EU law, then it will send the case off to the European Court of Justice. So there is still a role for the European Court of Justice there. Arbitration panel, once it's decided that one side or other is in breach, then there are various sanctions which again reflect those in international agreements, other free trade agreements. So the arbitration panel can impose a lump sum or penalty payment on the defaulting state, or if that's not complied with, then bits of the agreement as a whole can be suspended, which is fairly standard in a free trade agreement. Interesting point seven, what about future? Because, of course, all I've been talking about so far is the divorce. What about the future? Well, we're told that um, under Article 184, the UK and the um, EU shall use their best endeavours in good faith to negotiate that future relationship. 
Is it legally binding? I think not. Other lawyers take a different view, but it's quite difficult to get legal enforcement of trying to get two sides to come together and negotiate and conclude agreement. But it is a fairly high threshold, best endeavours, nice language, makes you feel good. <laughs> right, backstop. Now, this is the thing that's taken up so much time. It's been so difficult to sort out. The backstop problem can be summarised as follows. The UK Conservative government says we want to sign our own trade deals with the US, Canada, New Zealand, Australia. But the only way we can sign our own trade deals is to leave the EU's customs union, which means inevitably there will be friction on the border because of the application of the rules of origin. The moment you're talking about friction on the border, that puts into play the border between Northern Ireland and the south of Ireland. And that border under the Good Friday Agreement should remain frictionless. Indeed, there is now no physical infrastructure on the border. So one of the suggestions about how to deal with this fundamental tension is that Northern Ireland should stay in the customs union and the single market and the UK comes out. So you get a border down the Irish Sea. Totally unacceptable to the DUP and indeed large parts of the Conservative Party. Remember the full title of the Conservative Party is in fact the Conservative and Unionist Party and therefore they don't want to physically, geographically split their country um, down the Irish Sea. So then the question is, what do you do about this border? answer lies in this rather fudged and very complicated backstop. But in essence, what we see is, in respect of the backstop, Northern Ireland will stay in the single markets for goods and the customs union, and the rest of the United Kingdom will stay in um, a single customs territory. Now, this is deeply unpopular because the moment you start talking about a single customs territory, that means essentially the UK is staying in some form of customs union, which means no trade deals, which is why there's so much hatred for this deal. So the withdrawal agreement is peppered with references to the fact that we hope the backstop is never used. It's a bit like an insurance policy on your house. You sincerely hope that it's never going to catch fire and the insurance there is, is there just to cover the remote situation that it does happen. They sincerely hope it won't happen. You don't need the backstop because some magic agreement will be in place that overcomes this fundamental problem, which is ultimately unsolvable. It's impossible to solve because it is an impossible circle to square. So you have, in the Northern Ireland Protocol, you've got reference to this important phrase, the single customs territory, and also reference to the fact that they don't want to border down the Irish Sea. So you're going to protect the UK's own internal market. That's the integrity of the relationship between Scotland, England, Wales, and Northern Ireland. And there's a review mechanism on this, and this is the other thing the Brexiters don't like about this agreement. There's a review mechanism that in order to try and get out of this backstop, were it ever to come into force, then um, you need to go to the Joint Committee and both sides need to agree. It is not a unilateral point of departure. It's a bilateral. You've got to have a bilateral agreement. So that's why that bit's hated. And furthermore, to get the whole thing to function, there's got to be level playing field issues, LPF. And level playing field issues means the EU will insist on non-regression in respect of uh, EU rules on employment rights and environmental standards. So 
the UK has got to respect the existing rules, not improve upon those rules as those rules um, get changed as the years go by, and also in respect of state aid, but there is dy dynamic alignment in state aid. The UK has got to keep up with the EU rules. So in conclusion on the withdrawal agreement, what we see is, yes, sure, it's a divorce, but crucially, it's not just divorce papers. Why is there so much detail in this text? Because I think it's providing a lot of it is going to be cut and paste and put into the future agreement. So that will reduce some of the time it will take to negotiate the future agreement. And this is certainly not the pro forma for any form of soft Brexit. It's primarily about goods. Of course, it says nothing about mobility and services. I'll say a couple of things about the political declaration. So we've been talking about the divorce to date. Can we now move on to the political declaration? The political declaration is this non-legally binding document. And I just want to say a couple of things about that. First, it is full of very fine words, lots of buzz terms, lots of adjectives, and therefore lots of wriggle room. My favourite phrase is that one, there's going to be a spectrum of different outcomes for administrative processes. I haven't a clue what any of that means. But there is something very nice about autonomy of EU law and parties' regulatory and decision-making powers. Lots of reassurance to Brexiteurs on the first page note that we're going to have an independent trade policy and we'll be ending free movement. All of that suggests that there's going to be a free trade agreement, so it's, it's much like the Canada deal. And also what we see is the marvellous reinvention of MAX-FAC, maximum facilitation. That was what Theresa May was pushing in the summer. MAX-FAC is um, using technology to overcome the problems on the Irish border. At the moment, such technology does not exist without any physical infrastructure. But although it looks like there's going to be a free trade agreement and we can therefore negotiate other free trade deals, in fact, it, there's a contradiction because they also talk about a single customs territory which suggests that we're staying in some form of customs union, therefore we cannot have any free trade deals. And all of that is hidden, that nothing is sorted to um, deal with that tension. As far as higher education is concerned, there's, it, there's a glimmer of good news. We're going to participate in shared programs. And indeed, for young people, there is going to be, it looks like, special arrangements um, in respect of youth exchange programs. And wearing my university hat, I sincerely hope that means it will stay um, part of the Erasmus program. But more generally, with mobility issues, it's finished. Free movement is finished, and Theresa May tells us that a great deal. She says that is a triumph for the UK, but it does mean the loss of rights of free movement for um, millions of British people. They will be able to have visa-free travel for short visits, but none of this is clear about what sh how short is short and what happens if you do a bit of paid employment while you're there. But crucially, national immigration law will apply. So it really is, looks much more like the Canada deals, what's being envisaged, than um, anything we're more familiar with. Finally, Brexit timetable. We've got to get all of this agreed. How do we get all of this agreed? Well, we've got this process coming into force, going, going through, and the process says we've got the meaningful vote. I say 12th there. It now looks like it's going to be the 11th. 
At the moment, it looks like um, it's not going to go through, but what we've always heard is this is guaranteed not to happen. Things change so fast. The public is fed up with hearing wall-to-wall -wall Brexit, and they may well put pressure on their MPs to vote in favour of Theresa May's deal. That's not the end of it, because you also have then got to translate that whole agreement into domestic law, into the WAB. And as far as the WAB is concerned, that's the Withdrawal um, Agreement Bill, which gives effect to that great big body of law into domestic law. People who lost on the meaningful vote may have another go as the WAB goes through Parliament in January. If nothing is agreed by the 21st of January, Theresa May has got to make a statement to Parliament, say what's going to happen next. The last point that the European Parliament can vote on this deal, because the European Parliament's also got to sign off on it, is the 11th to the 14th of March, because then their Parliament ends because they've got European Parliament elections. Lots to pay for, lots of uncertainty. The one final thing I would say is... Although there are issues with the withdrawal agreement, particularly political issues about where you stand on it, the fact is it's an impressive legal document and a hell of a lot of legal work's done. So good news for lawyers. Thank you very much. Thank you, Cathy. So good evening, everyone. So um, I'm not... Uh, a lawyer. Um, so I will say uh, that while this is, uh, I, I learned a lot from this and I'm sure you all did as well, it might be of course that it's all wasted uh, because it might be it's not voted through. As Catherine was saying there, uh, there's going to be a vote on in Parliament on the 11th of December and at this point it looks like certainly when it goes through Parliament first it will be voted down. If any of you have seen the debates on this in Parliament, you will know that Theresa May has very little um, support from either side of the House. Now, what I'll look at now is what if Parliament rejects this deal? What are the options? And what does the public think about this? So Catherine said the public is fed up. Well, more than it's fed up, the public actually feels quite strongly about this. Um, so I would say that the sort of argument that, oh, you know, whatever happens, everyone is just sort of let's get behind the deal, I think is a bit premature. So what will happen if, if Parliament rejects the deal? Well, in the first instance, um, the government could go back and try and renegotiate. We know, of course, that right now the EU says that's not an option, but also the question is what would it renegotiate? Would it renegotiate this backstop that's been so hard to get a deal on? So that is, um, that's going to be difficult, and even if it does, then we're back to square one about whether that would go through Parliament. There might be a no-confidence vote in the Prime Minister if she loses. There might be another Prime Minister who then tries to renegotiate, and then we're facing the same problem. There might be a general election, but even then there's a government that has to negotiate something. There might be a second referendum, either triggered by Theresa May, even though she says she's not going to do it, but she said before she wasn't going to have elections and did it anyway. Um, the problem, as I see it, is that all of these things, we think they're all sort of, they all require some kind of coordination and some kind of majority that we don't currently have. Whereas what doesn't require much coordination is Britain crashing out of the EU because that's going to happen on the 29th of March 2019 unless something else happens. That is not a decision that has to be made. That's the default option. doesn't mean it's necessarily the most likely option. We know that there's a, you know, if you ask parliamentarians, there would be a majority in parliament against it. But there has to be something else in place for that not to happen. And right now it's hard to see exactly what that is. Now... 
what I was here to talk about is what do people want? So has there been a massive shift in what people think about Brexit? Is it indeed time? Some people call it the people's vote. I'll stay politically neutral and call it a second referendum, even if it's not necessarily a referendum and the same thing. Do people, have people changed their mind and would they vote differently? Well, certainly we see quite consistently now that the British population has become slightly more pro-Remain. So it's not a massive shift, but there is a shift. All polls, now this is a sort of aggregation of polls that show that quite consistently we now see a sort of a reversal of the split that we saw in the referendum. So between sort of 52 and 54% would say that they would vote to remain in the European Union if the vote was tomorrow. That doesn't mean, of course, that after a campaign, it would look the same way, but that's how people answer the polls. And it's very similar if you ask other kind of questions like, do you think it was the right or the wrong decision to vote to leave the European Union? Again, we see a shift that more people, a majority thinks it was the wrong decision. Most of this shift comes from people who didn't vote in 2016, shifting quite firmly remain, but there are also some people who've changed their minds. What about a second referendum? Well, it's not clear that there's a majority for a second referendum, and that's because it's not clear what a second referendum would be about. But the, the direction of travel is very clear, is that more people now want a second referendum than they did in the aftermath of the 2016 vote. Now, of course, the harder question to answer is what would be the outcome if there was a second referendum? I mean, first of all, of course, neither of the major parties have said they have advocated calling a second referendum, although Labour has said that it's potentially on the table, although the Labour front bench is not entirely sort of unambiguous in how they talk about a second referendum. And despite this shift in the polls that I've shown you, we don't know, I think, for certain in any way what the outcome of such a referendum would be. We don't know what the question would be. Would it be similar to 2016? Would it be the deal versus no deal? Would it be a three-way vote on the deal versus no deal versus remain? And while we can see that Remainers are much more mobilized than they were in 2016, in other words, people on the Remain side feel more strongly about it, there would also be a quite strong case for Leavers saying they feel robbed of this vote, and they might be mobilized by that. One thing that's very interesting when we look at the polling data is what we, is really remarkable is that people identify very strongly with how they voted in 2016. So that is also why um, I think this would be a very divisive vote. It's not a vote where people are like, oh, you know, let's just get on with it. People would feel very strongly on either side um, of the divide. And I just wanted to show you one slide about how people feel about the, these, how, what these identities, political identities are feeling of being Remainers and Lever mean in terms of how they've spilled over into how we view each other. And this is a slide where we ask people sort of standard prejudice questions on, which are used sometimes, for example, to look at racial prejudice and so on, and partisan prejudice, and how, we th how um, uh, leavers, for example, view Remainers, and they see them as more hypocritical, selfish, close-minded, whereas they see fellow leavers as honest, intelligent, and open-minded. <laughs> and it's exactly the same for Remainers. They see 
leave us as hypocritical, selfish, and close-minded, and remain as not surprisingly honest, intelligent, and open-minded. And this divide is, is much stronger for Brexit than it is for conservative versus labor, which is another sort of political identity that's obviously salient. And it shows that a bit where we are as a country, that we are at a place where our, the way we voted in 2016 and the identity we associate with that has spilled over into a lot of things. Of course, how we view any deal, but also how we view each other. And this is not something that's necessarily going to heal immediately. And then the question is, well, what kind of Brexit do people then want? Now they have a deal on the table. And uh, I mean, of course, People don't necessarily have very firm or clear views, and most people have not read the sort of 600-plus pages and have a strong view on every sort of legal aspect. So what a lot of people rely on now when they look at the, think about the withdrawal agreement and the political declaration of obviously the kind of messages that they read in the press or they receive from their politicians. But what is very clear is that there's no clear sort of winner in terms of what people view. So if you, in this question uh, that just was fieldwork in the last couple of days, thinking about your view on Brexit for each of the following, please say what your first preference would be. What's interesting here and second preference and third preference is in terms of um, first preferences, that's a slight sort of 27% choose Remain. It's quite telling. You know, it's not that everyone who voted Remain in 2016 would vote Remain now. 18% uh, want May's deal. 15% want No Deal. And then there's 18% who wouldn't vote. And 22%, that's maybe the most honest answer, simply don't know. And then if you force them to have a first preference, we can see it's quite evenly split between Remain May deal and no deal, with a sort of slight majority remain. But again, if there was a referendum where all these three things would be on the ballot, of course there would be also sort of tactical voting where maybe the leavers would then either go behind a no deal or the, or the May deal. So in other words, leavers and remainers neither are particularly keen on the withdrawal agreement and the political declaration now. One of the reasons is it's very hard to split the difference on Brexit. A lot of leavers wanted something different or thought they were being promised something different. A lot of Remainers want to remain in the EU, so they don't want this deal either. And the polarized Brexit identities means there's even less consensus on Brexit now than there might have been back in 2016. And a second referendum, while it's, not, it's no longer impossible, would more likely than anything deepen such divisions because, of course, we would have to then rerun that debate again and people on both sides feel very strongly about it. Thank you. Thank you. Um, uh, good evening, uh, everyone. And I'm, I'm very sorry. Sometimes my name can have sort of pathetic uh, qualities, and I'm afraid tonight <laughs> was one of those nights. So I hope you didn't get too soggy on the way here. Um, look, you've uh, heard from uh, the lawyer, we've heard uh, some really interesting things around sort of social choice, um, and, and now you've got The Economist, uh, I'm afraid. Um, it is great to be here as well, because uh, I did my master's in economics here uh, at the LSE, um, and often went to lectures here, and I have to say, good choice, those of you who are in the balcony, my favorite seat was sort of just about there, and, uh, at the back, uh, definitely the place to, to get the whole picture from. Um, 
Uh, and actually, amazingly, for an economist, uh, tonight I'm going to be agile. I am not using slides. Uh, I've done lectures here uh, before, uh, some of which has been making the case for uh, transition, certainly making the case for why uh, the UK remaining in some form of customs union uh, with the EU is important and, um, and around the importance of services uh, trade with the EU uh, to the overall economy, and I've used slides uh, for all of those. Uh, but tonight, I think particularly because today was quite an important uh, day in terms of the economic uh, assessments of our relationship with the EU and changing that and how it might impact the economy with the Treasury coming out with their assessment and, and also the Bank of England uh, just a couple of hours ago. Um, but what I wanted to sort of talk to you about is uh, really how the sort of business community uh, is feeling about where we are now um, and, and the sort of wider piece around the economy. Uh, and I think there's no doubt we're at a critical time for the UK economy, uh, based, and certainly in terms of our overall country and, and our overall position uh, in the world. Um, and I think one of the things we do need to sort of uh, get straight is actually Brexit has already taken a toll on the economy, um, uh, and that certainly has it's happened through a weaker exchange rate, which has fed through to higher inflation. That squeezed household incomes in, in real terms. Uh, essentially, pay hasn't kept up with that higher inflation, uh, and that's led to, to slower household uh, spending. So certainly consumers have felt it. Um, and I think businesses uh, have certainly felt the impact through the risk of uncertainty. Um, and, and the risk of no deal, uh, both on their investments and also on their ability to in, invest in new technologies. Um, and I think, and we've heard a bit of, about this already, certainly in terms of our social divisions, but I think um, also on, on people and, and uh, their overall uncertainty about EU citizens and their right to remain. And I think we did see some, I think, helpful clarifications on what we've seen in the withdrawal uh, agreement so far, uh, but there is still some uncertainty out there. Um, and I think one of the big challenges uh, for the UK is, you know, the rest of the world isn't standing still. The, the world is absolutely uh, changing fast. And I think one of the big challenges for the UK is we need to move um, beyond Brexit. We need to look at uh, what's happening uh, in the rest of the world. We need to look at, at newer technologies. Uh, there certainly is a, a fourth industrial revolution. And, and I think also for our, our policymakers, it is, it is taking up so much of our, our, our time and energy. Uh, and it does mean that some of the bigger challenges I think that the UK has at the moment in terms of uh, inclusive growth <coughs> are maybe not getting as much um, attention uh, as they should. But I think in terms of where we are now, there is no doubt at the moment that the critical issue for the UK is uh, Brexit. Um, and I guess in, you know, we're, we're supposed to sort of take stock of, of progress and, and where we are now. Um, and I think we have made some progress. It doesn't always feel that way uh, when we reflect over the past um, couple of years. But I think what we have at the moment is we do have a deal uh, on the table. I think we'd all acknowledge the deal is not perfect. Uh, it's a compromise. I don't think uh, anyone is. Um, uh, I don't think it's anyone's first preference, uh, as, as, as we economists uh, would say. Um, but what I found from sort of talking to businesses uh, around the country, and as the CBI, we speak for 190,000 businesses. We have a very formal way of uh, going to the businesses in our membership and asking uh, their opinion through our committees. Um, uh, and otherwise. And I think what we found is they do support 
the deal on the table. And, and it's really for three main reasons. One is, is what we came, what I started with, making the case for uh, transition. The real challenge at the moment, the real risk for the UK economy is a no deal, uh, a no deal Brexit. And there's no doubt that the, you know, the probability of that has gone up uh, tremendously from where we were maybe a year ago. Um, and that really is a cliff edge uh, for the economy. Um, secondly, it provides a route to a new trade deal with the EU. At the moment, we haven't got any other uh, viable route for uh, a new trading arrangement with uh, the EU. Um, and, and I think, you know, and there are, you know, even tempting as it might be uh, to look at a second referendum uh, and, and other mechanisms. The challenge at the moment is there's no clear political route uh, at the moment to that second referendum. So I want to talk about each of those three things uh, in, a, in a bit more detail. And I think if we talk around, you know, why is stepping back from the cliff edge of, of no deal so important to businesses? Um, it's because it gets us into that transition uh, agreement. So it does give us... Um, you know, 20 months until the December 2020 to negotiate what our final trading arrangement uh, could look like. Um, uh, and I think, you know, for businesses, that means, and, and for people, we know that during that transition period, nothing will change, we'll be operating, we'll be within the customs union, we'll be in the single market. Goods and services can move across borders in the same way uh, that they do uh, at the moment. And that's important for businesses to access the 500 million consumers uh, across the rest of Europe. It makes it easy you know, for flights to, to take off and land uh, across borders. It makes it easy for our TV shows to be sold uh, across borders uh, as well. Um, and we also know what the rules will be in terms of determining our, our, um, our safety standards, our environmental uh, protections, and, and in our, our labor markets. Um, and I think that you know, that is, is crucial, I think, from where uh, the business uh, community is. Um, and I think, you know, one of the other things when you talk to businesses, it really is tough for businesses at the moment out there. I mean, when um, what we found when we've sort of gone out and done surveys of businesses is eight out of ten businesses are seeing an impact on their investment decisions uh, at the moment um, because of Brexit uncertainty. Um, and I think one of the, the challenges is that as each week uh, passes, as we still um, don't have a deal that's moved through Parliament, is you have companies making real decisions uh, about jobs, uh, about supply chains, um, and ultimately that has an impact on, on real people's lives um, throughout the UK. Um, and I think we've seen from the government's own uh, assessment, we've seen from the Treasury, uh, they looked at the impact of a no deal over the long term uh, and found that that would wipe 8% off the level uh, of GDP uh, after 15 years. You can think of that, uh, you know, it would play out over time, but essentially that's knocking um, half a percent of our growth every year. So it means, you know, the, our economy, yes, it's still growing, but it's just not growing as fast as it would have done uh, otherwise. Um, and we've also seen that the Bank of England do their own uh, assessment uh, the Treasury was looking main, mainly at the long term. Um, they didn't consider what might happen in, in the very short term. But the bank has a mandate to, to look at a short term forecast. And I have to say, I haven't looked through the full uh, detail, but it's pretty terrifying when you look at the impact that they say we might see from a disruptive no-deal Brexit. They're looking at a scenario where unemployment goes up to 7%. 
um, from its current level of around 4%. Uh, we could see inflation going up to 6%. These would have very real impacts uh, on people, and we would really feel that, I think, in all of our daily lives. Um, but I think, uh, you know, so I think that big challenge at the moment is avoiding the sort of short-term disruption of, of a no-deal uh, Brexit. Um, and I think most of, you know, the challenges around that no deal, it's, it's really about getting goods and services through borders. It's about uh, delays at borders. Uh, we know there's not much capacity at Dover. Yes, some of our other ports could take some of that uh, capacity. But if you are in a no, no deal situation, um, you know, only a two-minute delay at the port of, of Dover can lead to 17-mile uh, tailbacks. And I'm certainly not very reassured by some of uh, the government planning around uh, looking at using motorways as, as car parks that didn't um, reassure me that much. Um, so I think there's no doubt that we'd see uh, a big impact from no deal. Um, and I think one of the biggest challenges is particularly for small businesses. It's really hard to, you know, it's as baffling as we find some of the different scenarios that are out there. Imagine if you're, uh, you know, you're, you're an entrepreneur, you're trying to run a business. Um, that's really difficult uh, to do. And at the same time, you're trying to have to think about all these different Brexit scenarios. It, it's just really uh, hard to do. Um, but I think, secondly, the reason why businesses, you know, are starting to get behind the deal that's on the table is because it provides a route to uh, a new trading agreement with the EU. And we know that the majority um, uh, of our goods and services, the EU remains our most important uh, trading partner. Um, and what, uh, what the political declaration um, is short. It's only 26 pages. We know that in general trade agreements run much more in, in the realms of 4,000 pages. I think that shows just how much work lawyers and economists and trade negotiators uh, are going to have on their hands uh, over the course of that transition, which could well uh, get extended beyond uh, December 2020. Um, but I think we do have a bit of a shape of where that uh, trade deal could go. Um, and, it certain, and some of that direction of, of travel is helpful. It does talk about free movement of goods um, on services. That's where we really need to iron out more of the detail. But even there, it talks about the importance of the free movement of data, uh, which is actually crucial for most of the way in which services move uh, across borders. And when we've asked businesses, nine out of ten businesses have said that that movement of data is, is crucial for us to be able to, to move, um, you know, be it financial services or media or creative industries um, across borders. Um, but, you know, what I think we do know is we do have a long road ahead in terms of negotiating that trade deal. Um, and I think finally, you know, the, the big challenge is there doesn't seem to be, you know, political routes to, to any other viable option. I think, as Sarah pointed out, that there isn't really a majority uh, for other options uh, on the table. So I think what we've been sort of saying is uh, what we want MPs to do as, as they, you know, they come, they, they will be faced with a really, really, really difficult choice uh, in, um, you know, in 10 days or so. Uh, in a couple of weeks. Um, but I think what they should do is, you know, talk to businesses in their local constituencies, get a sense of what it means to them, talk to people in, uh, in their constituencies, uh, and certainly listen to uh, some of the bright minds and some of the academics who are trying to, uh, you know, disseminate what's in the deal and what the alternatives are. Um, but I think, uh, I think from what we, we want to see is that it is important that we get that no deal uh, off the table. 
Um, and I think, importantly, so we can negotiate the best and closest relationship we can uh, with the European Union. Um, and importantly, so then we can also start to tackle some of the other really big policy questions uh, that are facing the UK um, around, and that's really around how we can create um, more inclusive growth across all the regions uh, in the UK. So I will leave it at that. Thank you very much. So, the impact of Brexit on Whitehall. I mean, one of the things we all know is that no preparations for Brexit uh, were done uh, in advance of the referendum. Uh, That's uh, a contrast with 1975, the last time we voted on whether to stay in the European community as was or to leave, where a small amount of work was done, only a small amount of work, because by the time the campaign started, uh, the uh, Remain campaign was well ahead uh, in the opinion polls, and that uh, large lead never shifted. Of course, the reason why David Cameron uh, did not allow any preparation to be made was because in today's world, that would immediately have become public, and he would have been accused, or the government would have been thought to be planning for failure. And uh, although David Cameron and the government have been, have been much criticized for the failure to plan, I think... Um, Uh, If David Cameron had allowed the planning, all the experts would now be saying, well, of course, one of the reasons he lost was because he signaled in advance that he didn't think he was going to win. So for him, it was a no-win situation. I think from a a practical point of view and a statesmanlike point of view, we should have had the planning. From a political point of view, you can absolutely understand why we didn't. Um, as far as the relationship between, uh, between civil servants and ministers are concerned, there is, there is always a suspicion of civil servants on the part of ministers. After all, if you're a civil servant, you serve uh, the government of whichever party is in power. When Labour come in, they think all the civil servants have died in the wool Conservatives. Uh, when the Conservatives come in after a period, they think all the, we're, we're, all the civil servants are, are died in the wool uh, Socialists. The reality is that although the civil service is institutionally conservative with a small c, I think on broader politics, individual civil servants pretty much reflect the variety of opinion that there is across the country. And indeed, if you are a civil servant and unable to express political views, it may be if you have those views and you're more likely to have them because you work closely with uh, ministers, you're more likely to want to vote and potentially to vote against the government of the day than before. So I think the notion somehow that that um, uh, we are tied to a, the particular party that's been in power or in the case of, in the case of Remain or, or Brexit to a particular outcome uh, is uh, mistaken. But that belief on the part of ministers coloured, uh, has coloured, and I think less so now, but certainly at the beginning, very much coloured um, where uh, the government turned to uh, for uh, advice. The view of Jeremy Hayward, the Cabinet Secretary, who very sadly died uh, just a few weeks ago, very uh, uh, prematurely, was he said to a colleague of mine who was a permanent secretary in another department who wanted to be able to give his unbiased uh, advice, Jeremy's view was, you've got to be able to get into the room. Uh, and you won't get into the room if you're giving advice that ministers don't want to hear. Now, that is a bad situation for a government to get itself uh, into because the whole point of having a civil service is to give you, is to give you the facts, tell you the consequences of, uh, of your proposals, and then, of course, it is for uh, ministers to decide. Ivan Rogers, who was the permanent representative to the European Union, resigned because he felt that he was not able to give that view to... Uh, to, uh, to ministers. 
and I think this is partly a reflection of the trends I've mentioned, this partly reflects the personality of the Prime Minister. I think it's very uh, interesting and has constitutional implications. The fact that we've had two uh, political negotiators, David Davis and Dominic Raab, but actually the person doing the negotiations, virtually all of the negotiations, has been a civil servant, uh, not a minister. And I can't think of a big negotiation uh, where that has been uh, the case in the, recent, uh, in the recent past. So we started with a situation where unpalatable advice was unwelcome. Uh, in the, in DEFRA, the Department for Environment and Agriculture, when Andrea Litson was the Secretary of State, she required every submission uh, to her on the implications of Brexit to have a paragraph which uh, vaunted the good things that Brexit would bring to British agriculture. Well, that's fine, but that's actually that's what your special advisors are paid to do. It's not what the civil service is paid to do. On the other hand, on one level, Brexit has been very good for the civil service uh, because whereas civil service numbers went down by 19% after 2010, they've risen by 3% since Brexit. There have been over 11,000 new jobs uh, created, uh, most notably in the Home Office, DEFRA, HMRC, and the Business and Enterprise uh, Department. What is going to be the implication of Brexit itself for the way Whitehall uh, uh, operates? The first thing that will happen uh, when we leave and we're no longer part of the decision-making in the European Union is that the phone will stop ringing. Uh, the way the European Union works is that, as people know, the Commission brings forward draft legislation. But before that legislation is put forward in draft, there are endless uh, private discussions which involve civil servants from all the member states. Most of the legislation that's now on the EU stat statute book in respect of the single market and financial services and the proposed legislation uh, on uh, data has been heavily influenced uh, by British civil servants on instructions from ministers talking to the European Commission. Once a document appears, to, it has to, of course, before it can become law, it has to be agreed by the member states and the European Parliament, and it's negotiated at different levels. It's negotiated finally at ministerial level. It's negotiated before that at the level of ambassadors to the EU, people like me. But most of the real negotiation goes on with relatively young civil servants from across the European Union, including from Britain, going to Brussels and sitting in working groups actually hammering out uh, the deals and where the, and where the trade-offs uh, lie. And so there have now been generations since 1973 of civil servants who have had quite close relations with their opposite numbers around the European Union, talking on the telephone meeting uh, in Brussels. All that will stop. That will stop. Um, that will simp because what our partners will have no reason to bring us up because we will have no say in the legislation that they are adopting. That will have a huge impact on our national life and a very huge impact on the civil service. How do we compensate for that in terms of the exercise of uh, influence? Well, the fact is it's very, you, you can't completely compensate uh, for something which uh, is as dramatic and as significant as, uh, as, what, will, as what will happen. There are clearly areas where the United Kingdom has uh, a continuing important role. We are a permanent member of the Security Council. We're a significant member of, uh, of the IMF and the World Bank. We are a member of NATO and one of the few countries meeting the 2% uh, target. We do still have global representation, and the Foreign Office is rightly increasing its numbers very significantly, because one of the things that hasn't been so necessary in the recent past is bilateral diplomacy in the countries of the European Union, because most of the relationship was conducted in the way I've described. But now we will have to have 
have more bilateral diplomacy, we will need to be making a bigger effort to talk to the French, to talk to the Germans, to talk to others, both to find out what their position on issues of interest to us is and to seek to... uh, and to seek to uh, uh, influence them. So I think the Foreign Office, which has been a diminished department by virtue of uh, uh, the fact that the negotiations on Brexit have been handled by DEXU, the Department of Exiting the European Union, the Foreign Office will regain some of that uh, central position uh, in uh, Whitehall. But I think for uh, British civil servants uh, in, uh, in Whitehall, it's going to be a very uh, significant change of everything that they've uh, grown used to. And I think that just as we're going to have a uh, a significant transition period, there will be a transition which will last several years where we have to re-identify, really, where our interests lie and how do we further those interests and getting the the right personnel and training the right personnel, having the right skills uh, to enable us to try and compensate uh, for the things that we will lose. Thank you very much indeed. Okay, so you you came here because you had questions and you were um, unclear about uh, certain aspects of Brexit. Now we have the opportunity for you to uh, ask questions of the panellists. There are colleagues here in red with microphones, uh, which we need to have for the uh, recording. um, When you ask a question, if you could simply say who you are and uh, ask the question, if it's a question to a specific panellist, please let us know. Uh, Panel, I've mentioned before we came on stage that I wouldn't necessarily ask each of you to answer every question. We're going to uh, try to be time efficient. So questions, please. Could we take the gentleman uh, here at the very back, please? Uh, Keith Raffin, former MP and former MSP. Isn't it true we're going to have another referendum? It's just a question of when. We had two Scottish referendums 20 years apart. The next European referendum will actually be the third. Uh, Just a question of when it is. Um, The two million young voters have come in since the last time. uh, And a lot of my generation, thank God, who've caused the problem are dying off, hopefully rapidly. (laughs) Uh, Just on health care, we talk a lot about economics, but what about the impact on the health service? One of the most important letters I read before the referendum was from the nine senior consultants at Great Ormond Street. A third of their staff are from Europe, and they have 42 cross-European research projects which are under threat. Basically, pediatric research is endangered. Health is endangered. Okay, thank you. And then if we could take the lady just in front, just immediately here. Uh, Hi, my name is Tapas Gulkarni. Uh, My question is for Ms. Smith. Um, You said that 8 out of 10 businesses are seeing impact on their investment decisions. Um, How have business practices changed as a result of, like, the changing risk calculus that has come out of Brexit? Thank you. Uh, Other questions if we go to the very back uh, here? Uh, Hi, my name is Karthik. Uh, so my question is, what are you guys' opinion about this, uh, the possibility of a so-called TARP effect after December 10th and the uh, subsequent... Effect, the TARP effect. Oh, yeah. Uh, right. Okay. Yeah, and the subsequent uh, uh, adoption of, of this deal as by virtue of the falling pound sterling. Yeah. Okay. And then uh, final question for now, but we're coming back to you. Thank you. Uh, my name is Robin. I'm a 
volunteer with the European Movement in, in uh, Wandsworth. Um, I'd just like to go a question of Ray Newton-Smith about the um, CBR's decision to back this deal and the idea that it's going to reduce uncertainty. Because if this deal goes through, we're going to, probably going to have Theresa May go, be a crisis then, be a crisis, because there's no majority for any real deal. And you can still have a no deal at the end of transition. So we'll have a trans- tra- uh, extension of transition, uh, crisis, a crisis at the end of 2020 when, when the second transition runs out. Um, about getting a deal and get it through Parliament, and um, you know, is this a, is this really the best thing for Britain to, to, to go through this with this deal, or is it just about kind of having a, some, a little bit of order for, for, for a very small amount of time? Okay, many thanks. Uh, we're going to come back with uh, various rounds of questions, but uh, Wayne, there were two specific questions to you. Do you want to respond to those? Yeah, uh, let me just try and. Um pick up some of those. So I I think one on the, I'll I'll start with the the question around the sort of risk calculus. I mean, I think uh, there's a range of things. I think one one example I can can think of that businesses have have talked to me uh, about is that um, essentially when they're looking at, uh, you know, the return on on their investment, you know, do they they invest in a long-term capital project in the UK that might span five or, or ten years, particularly if you're in an industry where the, you know, what is our relationship in terms of customs union? What is our relationship in terms of that alignment of, of services matters? I mean, the car industry is, is sort of first and, and foremost uh, of those. Is Those decisions are much harder to make. And what often what practically that means is you're essentially putting in a risk premium on, on UK-specific uh, investments because the risk of investing uh, in the UK uh, is higher because of the political uncertainty. We just don't quite know, and, and it's uncertainty around what our trading relationships uh, would be. Um, I, I mean, a, a more colloquial way of, of sort of putting it is someone just said, look, you, now is just not the time you would go to your board with a major investment project. You're just not going to want to have that discussion uh, with your board right at this time. Um, so I think that is the, the real challenge. And I think, of course, the challenge for businesses is that is, you know, and they are still investing in technology. It's not that no investment is happening. It's just that at the moment, some businesses are having to put aside um, contingency plans. They're having to put in, in place stockpiling. They're having to look at uh, arrangements for uh, suppliers from the rest of Europe, um, you know, when, when they'd rather continue with the arrangements they, they have at, at the moment. And we know that that is a very uh, real effect um, at the moment. In terms of the, the question around... Uh, supporting the deal. I, look, it's something we, we certainly have discussed. We've agonized uh, internally. We, but what we, what we can do is go out to our chairs committee. We've had a call with them. We've gone through them and said, what, you know, what do you think? What should we do as an organization? So we have to reflect um, the sort of views uh, of our members. And I think for them, the biggest challenge at the moment is avoiding uh, no deal. You're right that it then means we're in a transition period. Um, but I think it feels like that once we're in that transition period, it at least gives us time to negotiate uh, a, you know, a trading relationship, whereas the risk at the moment is we, the, you know, the clock runs out, essentially, and, and we crash out uh, into no deal. And it, it's, it's a Hobson's choice. It's not a good uh, arrangement. You know, most businesses you know, before the referendum thought it was better for the economy to remain in the EU. Um, and, and, and I think the economic impact assessments put it very clearly. Leaving the European Union in any form will have an economic cost. But I think fundamentally the, the questions around 
you know, a second. And that's the other thing we do have to remember. This isn't the first referendum. Uh, you know, in the year I was born, we all voted to join the European Union. Um, voted to stay in the European <laughs> Union. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, so, um, okay. you, you know, I think it's, you know, but ultimately that becomes a, a political decision and you need a political leader to, to stand up and ask for it. Perhaps the follow-up question is that uh, assume that uh, Theresa May's deal is not supported in Parliament. At that point, does the CBI say anything different? So, uh, and the thing we've been absolutely clear is when, when the political you know, dynamic changes, we go back and consult, and we absolutely would not rule out a second referendum. It's really that, you know, once that comes on the table, then that's something, you know, and if we end up, if the deal falls, doesn't make it through Parliament, we would absolutely have to go back to our members and say, what do we do now? And what are the options? Do we look at extending Article 50? Is that something we should be pushing for? No, I understand the options, but you go back and you listen, you don't lead we can see we can we can lead our members we can try you know we can talk to them but but ultimately you know we can't um you know we always sort of talk you know we can be one or two steps ahead of uh, of your members but i think the other challenge is we you know we aren't we are politically neutral we can't okay. make political calls okay. and that's that's the challenge for us we can talk about the economic evidence the impact on Fine. business but we can't make political the other calls. question sarah was um interesting but a second referendum is inevitable isn't it a third well i, I mean the question i mean just on the generational analysis i mean that's i you know that's a very a favorite among Romanians, but it's very overly simplistic of course because that would sort of assume that your vote was a sheer function uh, yeah, but I think it's worth putting out there because we live in these silos and people retweet these things and tell these things to each other. Oh, when the old people die and all these young people come in, that will mean that almost like it was automatic. That's not how public opinion formation form. And in terms of the evidence we have, I agree with you, of course, if we were to have a referendum, let's say in May next year, young people would much more overwhelmingly vote Remain. But the thing, our experience from Norway and Switzerland, that's also voted in Switzerland many times and Norway twice, is once you are, I mean, once you're outside and further removed, you become, opinions actually harden. So I, my expectation, although this is entirely sort of, would be that if we leave, in fact, the sort of anti-EU thing would harden. Not now, where there's very mobilized around Remain, because then it's, it's a whole different game. Then it's the other. We'll have years and years of seeing the EU as the other, not, and there will no longer be this experience that we've lost something. And we would have to go in on very different terms. So I don't think the dynamics would necessarily be the same if we vote in 30 years. Of course, if we vote next year, then you would see that same similar generational dynamics. But we have to be very careful by thinking that public opinion in this sort of automatic things that as older people die off, then all of a sudden there's this massive remain majority. That's not how it works, as I'm sure you know. Okay, I'm going to suggest that your comment about the NHS, we simply leave lingering there. Uh, the point has been uh, heard. Uh, we don't have uh, a specialist on the NHS, and each of us feel pretty healthy at the moment, so <laughs> our knowledge of the NHS is uh, possibly distant. Uh, let's uh, take some uh, more questions. There's the lady at the very back. Uh, please. 
Thank you. Mara Monti, a visiting fellow at the European Institute. Um, talking about the second referendum, uh, someone said that uh, they take at least uh, 22 weeks before uh, having a second referendum. But in May, we have the European election. So what is going on? That means um, UK, uh, they have some chance to be part of this, of running for the European election, also in the case of the extension of the Article 50. So uh, what What's going on? What's uh, happened? Thank you. Okay, good. More questions, uh, please. There's uh, a lot. Let's try to take uh, quite a few. The gentleman in the middle here, please. Yes. If you just wait for the microphone. Hi, I'm an accountant by trade. A uh, couple of questions. Number one, how well is business prepared with contingency planning? for even the worst case. And number two, uh, this is more for Stephen Wall. How do you think, what's the direction of travel in terms of uh, the geopolitical thinking? Uh, will Britain become more insular or more um, global in the long run if it leaves the European Union? Okay. Yeah. And could we take the gentleman in the um, black jacket here, please, along the Uh, David Neil Smith, LSE alumnus. Uh, if there is no deal, which perhaps does look the most likely outcome at the moment, if Mrs May's deal is uh, thrown out, um, can you say something about, I mean, there are some advantages to a no deal. Uh, would I be right in saying, for example, that we are not legally bound uh, anymore to pay the 39 billion uh, and there's no transition period so we would not pay for that uh, I'd be interested to know if that 50 billion uh, does come to us uh, what do you think uh, how would you spend it how the panel spend it how would you boost our economy in the circumstances well given that we're at, <laughs> given we're at the LSE I think we have an obvious answer don't we really <laughs> We have an institutional interest in that matter. Let's, uh, I'm sorry, I'm trying my best. The gentleman here, please. Thank you. Uh, Peter McLaughlin. Um, isn't the, the last word risks, in fact, being miscast in this discussion? That we, if we heard the constant discussion of a deal as though this whole issue is a transactional issue, a few quid here, a few quid there, you can get down to a bit of fish, a bit of fish there. <laughs> In fact, what we're talking about is the fundamental architecture of stability on the continent. And it quite irritates me that people constantly refer, even the Remainers refer to Europe as though we're not Europeans. Now, that might well give it away of what my, uh, my attitude is. But the question still is there. Isn't this, in fact, risking the undermining of the fundamental stability of our continent and its fundamental incoherence it is not a stable continent can will that ask, in fact leave britain then in a much more vulnerable position can i just ask um the risk to whom what is, what is the risk that you're well uh, the, the risk, risk of, of no deal the risk of under the continent well, under us leaving under either yep. either formula uh that uh, we, the continental problems and, com and become it weakens okay. the european union okay yeah. thank you and that thank putin you. is the one smiling okay and can we take the gentleman almost at the front here? Uh, Brian Gomstakosta, uh, LSE alumnus. My question is specific to Stephen. 
extrapolating from his past experience of European behavior, how likely is it that their no means no in respect of further negotiation? Okay, perhaps if we can take one last question. Uh, gentlemen, at the, the very, well, almost at the back with the, um, the red. Uh. Dr. Keith Postler. Um, question again to Stephen Wall. Um, why do you think um, Theresa May, the PM, um, is going around uh, the country or the UK um, speaking to the populace. Is this desperation or what, what path does this lead to? Why is it happening? Thank you. Uh, I'll make no comments on Theresa May going around the country speaking to people, whether that's an advantage or a disadvantage for, <laughs> for her or, or her audience, but I, I get the point. Uh, could we start on the legal aspects, Catherine? Yeah, thank you. The question primarily was, is there a legal obligation to pay the yeah. 39 billion? Um, answer, uh, quite a lot of it, yes. Um, because it's about liabilities that have been in, in already incurred. It's about programs that we've already committed to. I mean, it's a bit like if you're um, paying for um, a house purchase that you're paying money back over a long period of time, uh, you've got to pay for it. The interesting question is if we say we're not going to pay, what are they going to do about it? Um, there's quite an interesting legal point about whether it should, the case would go before the ECJ. I suspect it would probably go before the ICJ, the International Court of Justice, because we're no longer a member state. But I think there's a very good chance they will pursue it, us for it because they say we have signed up and committed to it. Also, do bear in mind that the $39 billion is not us writing a cheque in one, one dollop to the EU. It's going to be spread over a lot of years, I think um, decades, I think until... Um, something like 2066 is when the money is finally paid off. I might be wrong about the precise date. Um, so it will be paid over a long period of time. In answer to your question, what would I have spent it on if I'd had that? Um, I would have said a decent legal aid system. <laughs> <laughs> Can I just ask, uh, Catherine, that sometimes you hear the comment that not paying the 39 billion might have consequences for signing other international trade deals. Yeah, I mean, it's a reputational issue, and Stephen can talk about that better than I, but it shows we're an unreliable trading partner. We, we mm. renege on our commitments. And actually, I don't think we'll do it, because I do think we are very interested in preserving our reputation on the international stage. The fact is, we owe that money. We've got to pay it. There might be a discussion about precisely how much, but they will go after us for it. Okay. Stephen, there's quite a few questions for you. Yeah. Uh, on the... Um question of why Theresa May is going around the country talking to uh, the public, I think it's a straight, perfectly straightforward rationale that she hopes that in the individual constituencies um, people will put pressure on their, on their MPs uh, to, support the, to support the vote, and I think it's, 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 it's quite a sensible uh, tactic in present, uh, in present circumstances. Um, on the question about the referendum, you're absolutely right. We, 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 would, we would have, to, we would have to, to have a, refer a second referendum. We would have to first of all, ask for an extension of the Article 50 uh, period and have to have some 
discussion and decision uh, about uh, the European Parliament. Uh, and and it, that's, that's, very, that's very intractable, and that could be a real issue for our, for our partners as to, as to whether they were prepared to agree to the extension. I don't, I'm not aware that any real discussion, of, for obvious reasons, has, has happened about this, and there's no, there's no very formed uh, view. On the question of insularity, yes, I think we will become more uh, insular. Um, I think we, we will be leaving the organization which has been the main vehicle through which we have exercised uh, uh, influence uh, economically, in terms of foreign policy, uh, not in terms of the hard defense which goes through NATO, but certainly in terms of security. That's what the enlargement was about. It was about uh, securing democracy in our continent, and we'll no longer be part of all those things. And in a world of scarce resources, I think our resources will inevitably be focused domestically. Plus, um, at least for the duration of the Trump administration, um, uh, America at the highest level is not going to be a reliable ally. It's perfectly, perfectly clear that even if we want to be Mr. Trump's best friend, which from a personal view I say God forbid, um, that Mr. Trump doesn't want to be our best uh, friend. So we haven't, got a, we haven't got an avenue there of exercising influence. So I think insularity uh, will certainly be uh, a factor. Um, the question about the undermining the stability of our continent, I absolutely agree with you. One of the tragedies, and you, you will have gathered by now that I'm a Remainer, one of the tragedies of the campaign was that the Remain campaign organizers insisted that the only argument that should be made was the economic argument. And nobody ever really stood up and made what I call the moral case for, for Europe, which is exactly one that you, that, uh, that you made, and it by and large, uh, it by and large uh, um, uh, wasn't here. On the question of does no mean no, I think it does for the simple reason that the, the heart of this thing is the, is the, is the Irish backstop issue. Uh, as Catherine said, and it's very difficult to see a way, a way around that. I mean, the British government entered perfectly willingly into the commitment to have no hard border. The 26 countries are, su are supporting Ireland uh, in its insistence on it, and I don't see that, uh, I don't see that changing. Well, the policy implications the, of that? Well, the policy implications of that for, of, of that for, for us is that if the, if the Theresa May deal were not to get support in the House of Commons, for, on the Brexiteer side, what the Brexiteers, I think, are relying on is that the Withdrawal Act, as it stands, says that we will leave on the 29th of March, and they will try and head off any manoeuvre uh, which does anything other than lead us straight to that, because for them, jumping off the cliff is better uh, than staying in. And you have to remember that in the, in the European research group, so-called, in the Conservative Party, leaving the European Union is by far and away the most important thing to be done in the national interest, in their view. So that's what their aim will be. Then the question is, given that there are quite a lot of uh, pro-Remain uh, Conservatives, certainly Conservatives who wouldn't want to crash out, Labour Party, a lot of uh, pro-Remainers, although slightly ambivalent policies we know from the, uh, from the leadership, whether there is a different majority that could be constructed in the House of Commons for uh, an alternative, such as a referendum. And I think that that's, you know, that, that is all, all to play for uh, over the next, uh, over the next few, few weeks. Um, but if Theresa May can't uh, get support for her deal, then uh, the options do look to me very much like either the crashing out scenario or ultimately um, another referendum scenario. Okay. Right, and there were questions about the, uh, whether business yeah. is prepared. Uh, yeah, so on contingency plans, look, I, I don't think business is 100% prepared. 
prepared and, and nor could they be. There's just too many uh, scenarios uh, out there. I mean, what we do know is that, you know, in, in October you found uh, one in five businesses had put in place uh, scenario, you know, uh, contingency plans as you kind of roll forward by the end of December, um, you know, around one in eight uh, businesses will have put in place some form of contingency plan for a, a no-deal uh, scenario. But, I mean, you, you can see the challenge when you think about fresh, uh, fresh fruit, uh, pharmaceuticals, a lot of them have shelf life. So you can't, you can't start stockpiling now for what might happen uh, in March. You, can't, you have to wait till uh, nearer the time. And there's still so much uncertainty as to what that uh, no-deal would look like. And, and particularly for smaller businesses, it's genuinely really hard for them to be mm. able to, to prepare. So I think uh, they can't be prepared for, for all outcomes, but they're certainly trying. Um, I guess just briefly on some of the other uh, points, I mean, I think... Absolutely, um, you know, the, the, there are much wider issues at stake in terms of our political security. In terms, and I think, you know, the real, you know, as much as an economist, I care about the economics. Actually, I think there's much bigger political issues uh, at stake. And I think even when you think about the referendum, what's interesting about it is the outcome is that it determined people's citizenship. So. I, you know, if we end up at the end, I will no longer be a citizen of the European Union, nor will my children. That's quite interesting that a one-day referendum has determined that, um, and I think okay. it's quite unique for that. I think the only other thing I'd just say briefly on the, the fiscal uh, cost, um, we might save 39 billion, but what we would, that would absolutely be knocked out of the park by the impact on GDP and therefore the impact on tax receipts uh, and on customs uh, into the public finances and the Treasury's assessment very clearly sets that out. If we, you know, if we crash out with no deal, we will be poorer as a country and our public services will have a lot less money um, you know, to spend. So I think we would have a big fiscal hole. Sorry, did you want to add anything? With the panel's agreement, I'm going to try to squeeze in uh, two or three more questions. Is that okay? Very good. Uh, could we take the lady at the very front, please? Um, Anne Corbett. Um, one of Stephen Wall's eminent predecessors, John Kerr, wrote a report headed uh, The Roadmap to a People's Vote, uh, suggesting six ways to achieve it. Um, Actually, when you look at it, it's all a bit vague. I would want, wonder if uh, any of the panel can give me a nuts and bolts explanation of how we get there, what MPs should do and when. Okay, good. Thank you. The, uh, yes, the gentleman uh, here in the grey. Hi, my name is Cosimo. I am a student here at the LSE. And now my question was uh, referring to what Stephen Wall has just said before in terms of contingency plan. It seems like now Theresa May has co and her cabinet have come under increasing pressure from the public and MPs as well to uh, about what's going to happen if this uh, deal is not going to be passed by Parliament. What, what is her plan B? And she says that this is the only plan that she has. Do you think that uh, the civil service is actually preparing for a no scenario for this plan B? Uh, what does this plan B look like, in your opinion? Okay, good, thank you. And I think there's the lady at the very back. Do you see any eventuality which could lead to some kind of reconciliation or some kind of healing of the terrible divisiveness that's been provoked by this referendum? Okay, good. 
Let's uh, squeeze in a very, very last question. The gentleman on the very back uh, row. Um, it, it, it seemed to me, having watched this process for about 45 years now since the um, initiation of us in, in, into Europe, that uh, we seem to always overestimate our negotiating ability. <laughs> um, we, we think it's an equal process, and it clearly isn't an equal process. All the cards rest with the EU. They are more concerned, surely, to keep the um, 27 united, which they have successfully done, even though there are undercurrents of disagreement. We are completely disunited, and we're a tenth of their population. Okay, good. Uh, <laughs> the, the, all of the questions are excellent. You can also uh, applaud the panel uh, later on. Uh, could I <laughs> invite you to give very short answers? Uh, Catherine, referendum, John Kerr, uh, and how do we get that? The most important thing is you need an act of parliament, so there needs to be an amendment probably to one of the many acts of parliament that are going through at the moment. Uh, you then need to have a question. That question needs to be road tested by the Electoral Commission. That's not straightforward because if you're going to go through a three-pronged question, uh, that requires more testing. Uh, you also need to take a decision on the scope of the franchise. Who's going to vote? Will it be extended to EU nationals living in the UK and UK nationals who've been abroad for more than 15 years? Uh, you also need to work out what voting mechanism is it going to be, first past the post, or will there be some sort of threshold? Will there be some single transferable vote. All of these issues are difficult and all of it will take time. It's thought you probably need, somebody said 22 weeks, it's, it's sort of about six months. By definition, we would absolutely need to extend the um, Article 50 period because it can't be done um, quickly. And of course, if you change the voting system to what it was compared to what it was before, then the argument is you're not comparing like with like. Thank you. Uh, Stephen, there's the question about uh, contingency in a plan B, but there's also a question about uh, how come we regularly overestimate our negotiating power? Um, well, I, I, I said this as a, as a meeting here a, few, a week ago, so I apologise if anybody was here. But um, just after the formation of the European Community, um, when Harold Macmillan uh, could see that the European Community, contrary to Britain's belief, was, was going to be a success and started to negotiate some kind of merger between the European Free Trade Area, which we had set up as a kind of rival and the European community, he was rather surprised to discover uh, that the unity of the six in maintaining what they had agreed was more important than doing a deal with us. Chancellor Adenauer said Britain was behaving uh, like a man who's lost all his money but still thinks that he's rich. Um, and I think that's been a feature of, of, of this negotiation. I think, what, you know, we, I think we still suffer a bit from... Um, uh, post-imperial stress disorder um, <laughs> and we, ha we, have a, we have a habit of thinking that we know what our partners want better than they do and uh, if you listen to David Davis uh, you can hear that constantly when he was uh, in charge and, and, and obviously it isn't, uh, it isn't the reality uh, Plan B, I mean there isn't a, there isn't a, plan, a, a plan B I mean, what Theresa May has said is it's either her deal or it's the crashing out or it's the possibility that we might remain now, you know, obviously that opens up the possibility of a referendum, she was doing it to frighten uh, the Brexiteers into, into supporting her.
uh, but that's there. How far any contingency planning has been done, I simply don't know. I mean, in a normal world, you would expect the Cabinet Secretary to be doing some contingency planning um, for the possibility that there might be a, a general election. Obviously, there is masses of contingency planning for the, for the crash scenario. Uh, that's being done and, con- and conceivably for a referendum. But I think the same, I suspect that the same thing applies as applied before 2016, that they'll be very nervous about, uh, they wouldn't have any ministerial cover for doing contingency planning at this stage for anything other than the deal that the government have negotiated. Sarah, perhaps the deeper question of all, uh, can we see our way to um, society becoming reconciled, uh, more uh, reconciled to whatever the outcome is? is, I mean, it's obviously a difficult question. I mean, yes, I mean, I think there's any potential that you can come to, you know, we disagree on things in politics all the time. I think there's a, a couple of reasons why this is particularly hard with Brexit. One is that normally when we disagree in politics, there's a kind of rhythm to politics. So you're on the losing side, but then you know you can have another go at it in five years or four years. And the issue with the referendum is that if you're, for example, a Remainer and you feel strongly about it, you know, you know, you're not going to have another go. Maybe in 25 years, maybe not. Uh, Another issue is, I think, the very adversarial style of British politics. I mean, when these sort of things have happened in other countries, for example, in uh, Denmark, where I'm from, where we also voted down the Maastricht Treaty, there was a kind of national compromise across all parties because they realized this is a a big thing, whereas now you have, you know, that's not what you had. So, So, yes, you can have a reconciliation, but the way it's played out is almost the sort of worst possible way, and I do worry about a second referendum if that could potentially make these things even worse, at least in the short term. Because either way, certainly if there's a small Remain majority, I mean, there will be a part of the population that's very, very upset. Uh, And even if we leave, this issue will not go away. I mean, Brexit and the the relations with the European Union will be on the British political agenda, you know, for decades now. I wonder, Sarah, if we could just go one step beyond that. I can see that... Uh, there's a potential divisiveness in terms of having a second referendum, people feeling that uh, they were robbed of the outcome that they wanted. But perhaps in terms of the point about reconciling society, might go deeper systemically. Can uh, expectations of Brexit actually be, be met? And then, if not, what does that mean to the health of our democracy? Can we deliver a Brexit which uh, satisfies the majority vote. I mean, I think that's exactly the problem because a lot of people who voted leave, even if that will, you know, still the most likely outcome in whatever form, will not be satisfied because they will not be getting exactly what they want. I mean, I think, and especially, of course, if it's very damaging to the economy, that will hurt anyone, you know, regardless of which side they're on. Of course, they'll probably blame you know, there'll be variation in who is blamed, <laughs> but depending on which side you're on, but, but it will not be so in that sense. If you want sort of a, a quicker healing, you know, the sort of the softer the landing, the better, I would say, because people, it won't affect people's everyday lives. I mean, the fact is that people didn't care terribly about the EU before the referendum was called. It was not an issue that was in everyone's minds. This is something that has been created by the political process, by the political parties, and in particular the Conservative Party that have cared a lot about it for decades. But this was not something people cared about a lot, but they do now. (laughs) Okay. Of course, uh, implicit in all of this is that we're living through momentous times, very critical uh, times, and you obviously came here to try to learn uh, a little bit more, to have uh, information. 
we never promised that we would answer all of your concerns and, and questions. Uh, but I think uh, our panelists have given the expert views and tried to explain different uh, aspects of it. So can you please join me in thanking our panelists? Thank you very much. Indeed.